0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Thank you for uh, tuning into our podcast. My apologies. This past week uh, was our first worship gathering at the Orlando Science Center, Um, and it was fantastic, but as uh, so often comes with change, there were um, a few technical things that we still needed to figure out once we got in, and so uh, the sermon from this past week was not recorded in the space, so I'm uh, recording this from home um, but I hope this will still bless you. And I think it's really important to still get this out here because uh, we're beginning a new series uh, in this new chapter of our community. Um, and we're calling it And the Thing After That, uh, which is maybe a bit of a silly name, but I it just, it just stuck for me as I was thinking through this. Um, you know, we've been on this journey this year where our vision is all our allegiance to King Jesus. And we've been examining that word allegiance as kind of an active faith. You know, so many of us, um, have been raised to believe that faith is something passive, that we just kind of sit back and we trust that the Lord is going to do something. But what if we reoriented our understanding of faith to be something active and dynamic, um, that our faith as allegiance is, is, is when we gather behind Jesus as our king with everything we are. Um, and it changes the way that we think, the way we feel, the way we act, the way that we see ourselves and the way we position ourselves in the world. So we began the year um, by allowing uh, the Sermon on the Mount to orient us to a vision of what it looks like to be allegiant to Jesus as our king. Uh, We allowed his kingdom manifesto to kind of ignite our divine imagination to see what's possible when we live uh, in the world the way that he desires us to. And then we allowed Paul's letter to the Colossians uh, to lead us into a deeper understanding of how we keep Jesus central to our pursuit in life and how that begins to shape and form, not just how we behave, but on a deeper level, who we really are. And so I really felt like, um, the next step for us was to examine that that piece about who it is that we're becoming. So the thing after that is really referring to, okay, what comes after salvation? So we' we've pledged allegiance to Jesus. Are we just to twiddle our thumbs for the next 20 or thirty years until we die and we go to heaven? What's happening in that space, from our their moment of salvation, our baptism, uh, to the moment that we pass on into the next life? And I think that that's really um, what I want us to be exploring in this series when it comes to this idea of virtue that Paul gives us a little bit in Colossians chapter 3. So um, today, I want to just kind of give a broad view of what we're talking about when we're talking about virtue. And we're going to be referring to a couple pieces of Paul's letter of Colossians, kind of revisiting some of that just to kind of set the template for where we're headed. So I'm going to pray and we're going to dive right into this. Father, I thank you for how you have led us so far. And Lord, I'm reminded of how easy it is for us to have five-year plans, 10-year plans, to have all this vision of where we think we're going. But so often the truth of following you is that we do not know where we are going, but we knew who we are being led by. That wherever we go, it is good because you are good. And we have some vision of who it is that we are to become uh, wherever we go because you've given us your son, Jesus, not just as the full revelation of what you're really like, but also the full revelation of what it means to be a truly, fully whole and complete human being. And so God, I pray over this next season for our church um, that we would be open to being surprised and delighted at the things that you want to show us about what it really tangibly means for us to follow you, um, to be shaped by the working of your spirit in us, and that you would give us that passion and that discipline to stay invested, to get some skin in the game, um, to really work it out from the, from the, in, the deepest part of ourselves, uh, that it would better inform the way that we position ourselves in the world. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I don't think it would be a surprise to anyone if I said that we're in a moral crisis today. And I don't mean just a moral crisis in our surrounding culture, but I think there's also a moral crisis happening within the church. You know, I don't know that there's ever been a time in history where we've been so inundated by all of these questions of morality, about how we're to behave, how we're to act, who's in, who's out. And um, so often it can become overwhelming when we're presented with all of these these new ideas, Um, that really call into question how we're positioning ourselves towards the world. How do we make decisions? Um, And one of the things that I find problematic is so often we're we're, uh, kind of forced to make quick snap judgments about what we're supposed to do. But I think the far more interesting thing and perhaps the more important conversation is the thing beneath the thing, which is how are we called to live because of who we are? that questions of morality are not simply about decision-making, and they're not just about behavior, but they actually get to these deeper questions of where have we come from and where are we headed? And I believe that deep within the human soul are these three questions that God has planted there on purpose. I think the first one is, who do I belong to? And this is a question of our origin. Where are we coming from? What is our source? before we even talk about what it means to be a human being, uh, where, where do we look to have some sort of grounding to understand ourselves and the world around us? I think the second question then is, who am I really? It's a question of identity. And what we find so often in our culture is that we're being invited, uh, the, the stories we're being told are telling us who we are. Uh, and the question is whether or not those stories are true. And the third then, I think, is what am I here to do? Why do I exist? What is my purpose? And where where is that leading us together as the human family? And so really what we're talking about, as I said, is morality. And I wanted just to to kind of briefly sketch out what I think is happening in the world today and then invite us to look at how virtue might begin to give us a really good North Star for understanding our moral decision making. And so what is happening in the world today? I think if we step way, way, way back, we realize that we're witnessing the end of the Enlightenment era or the era of secularism. And what what really happened, you know, a couple hundred years ago, is that um, modern culture, especially in the West, began to deviate and say, well... We believe that reason and logic can guide us forward as a species, that that faith and religion have served a purpose to a certain degree of telling us who we are and trying to answer these deeper questions of the human soul. But now in the new secular era, we can take it upon ourselves to use reason and logic to help us to move forward. And so a lot of people have said that through this era of secularism, um, we're seeing the death of belief the death of faith. But I think what we're beginning to realize in actuality is it's not the death of belief, but perhaps we believe more now than ever. Um, Because all of these these other stories that are kind of rushing in to fill the void that's left by the stories that religion has told us are still trying to answer those fundamental questions about what it means to be a human being. Because morality is actually guided by story. You know, we like to think that at the core we're rational creatures, but I think really we're story-based creatures. We all naturally put ourselves into a narrative about our origin, about our destination, and about how we live. Live in this present moment. Um, and I think that that is actually God-given. That's woven into our DNA to believe that we are living out a story. And if you really begin to zoom out, you begin to realize that everything around you is telling you a story that is trying to answer those fundamental questions of intimacy, identity, and purpose even just take a look at the advertising that we find all around us. You know, it's something wild, like we see 600 advertisements a day, and rarely anymore is advertising about just trying to sell you a product. But what advertising is really doing is trying to sell you a story about who you really are and your inherent value. So it's, it's not just this toothpaste is better than any other toothpaste. It really becomes about this makes you a better person. And at the core of what we find in a lot of advertising is you are not whole, you are not complete until you make this purchase or until you enter into this kind of story. And then you're going to find the answers that you need. We also find this in politics. You know, in our country, we have two dominant narratives, the conservative narrative and the liberal narrative. And they're making efforts to answer some of these moral questions. But on a deeper level, they're trying to tell us this is who you really are, even if that story is just this is what it actually means to be an American. We do find this in all sorts of religious spaces. Um, uh, We find this in the pursuit of fame and celebrity in our culture. All of these different things swirling around us are on a deeper level. Whatever they're trying to sell us is actually saying, you're not okay the way that you are. But if you sign up for our team, if you live our way of life, then you're going to find, insert, you know, the goal here. Whether it's uh, wholeness, completeness, happiness, success, whatever it might be. And so all these competing narratives and stories are swirling around like never before. And that's in large part because of the interconnectedness of the world that we live in today, that Even 50 years ago, most people were in relatively monolithic cultures where everybody basically had the same story and you had passing, um, you know, dalliances with other people's narratives, but it wasn't really causing these questions deep within yourself of like, okay, who am I really and and how do I treat these different kinds of people? But because of the rise of the internet and, and globalization, we begin to discover Um, that we're clashing up against all of these different stories. And it becomes overwhelming to us to try to sort out what is actually true and what am I actually called to be and to do. And so one of the, the, the constant critiques that I hear about our modern society, and this is often from within the Christian household, is, oh, this is society is immoral. There is no more morality. It's just kind of everything goes, like do whatever you want. But I want to challenge that. I think in actuality, we're living in an era not of immorality, but hyper-moralism, that all of these competing narratives have raised the stakes of how we behave, how we act, how we treat one another. And we find this so often um, by the pressure that's put on us to, to form opinions and beliefs as quickly as possible in order to be on the right side of history. Um... And what, what happens now in a hyper-moralistic society is that in order for you to belong, to be on the right side of history, you have to have fully formed opinions on all of these things. And so what so often happens is in order to be in relationship with me, you have to agree with me on the following 95 different points of belief in order to be worthy of my presence, to be worthy of my love. And what we're finding is the splintering of our common humanity, and we're actually retreating back into these little microcultures. So ironically, the, the internet was birthed to be this revolution of drawing all of humanity together, and we have this common pot from which we draw our understanding of the world around us, but in actuality, it's splitting us into all of these little different sub-genres of human beings and these microcultures. and what's happening is we're ending up lonelier than ever before because now there's all of these lines in the sand being drawn about who's in and who's out, who's on the right side of history and who's on the wrong side of history. And because it's, you know, technology is moving so quickly and culture's moving so quickly, it's making us feel overwhelmed and lonely because our deepest cry to be connected is not being answered anymore. And I think that's the power of what we find when we just explore what virtue is. Because I think virtue is the thing that comes before those moral questions of today. Just think about some of the things that we're facing today, whether it's in politics or whether it's around sexuality and gender or if it's around gun control or if it's around foreign policy or if it's around how we spend our money or whatever it might be. These are all coming from these far deeper stories about how we're supposed to behave. And I think virtue gives direction to our soul's ache for belonging and meaning by starting not with a story of what we're supposed to do or what we're supposed to believe, but a story of who we really are. Because virtue is about the formation of a person, of our character And virtue is beautiful because it goes deeper than all of the rules and the posturing that we find is kind of the the lesser settling within our society to try to organize us and to help us move forward as the human family. And that's what we find in Paul's letter to the Colossians, is that Paul wants to tell us a better, truer story than the one from which we were rescued. So I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 12, because I think this is kind of the piece in his letter that really begins to tell us that narrative. In Colossians 1, he's really uh, showing us this is who Jesus truly is when we hold him at the center of it all um, as the the image of God and the one through whom everything was created and the one to whom everything is being drawn back into place. And in Colossians chapter 2, Paul gives us kind of the therefore. This is how you're positioned within that story of who Jesus is. This is Colossians 6, or Colossians 2, 6 through 12. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So that's the, this idea of being rescued from all of the competing narratives and being placed firmly within the narrative of Jesus. He goes on, see to it, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. I love that past tense. You have been brought to fullness. That's so important. We'll get to that in a moment. He is the head over every power and authority, Oh, all the competing narratives of our culture in politics, society, all, whatever it might be. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so Paul wants to give us a better, a truer story. You see, every story in the world today speaks of our origin and our destiny. Where do we come from and where are we headed? And this is often what we find in questions of morality is it's what kind of people are we supposed to be? Where are we going? What does utopia look like? And it's only until we understand our origin and our destiny that it gives us better context for what we are to do now. And a lot of times the narratives that we're bumping up against in society begin to fall apart when we see what, what the mandate is for us to do today, how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to act, because it doesn't necessarily answer those two prior questions. And so what Paul's doing here is saying, well, you've been rescued from all of these, you know, ph- these hollow philosophies in the surrounding culture around you, whether it's in religion or whether it's in uh, your culture or your politics or whatever it might be, these different movements and philosophical ideas. And you've been firmly planted in the story of Jesus, and that's going to begin to shape who you really are not just to tell you how to behave. And, you know, it's amazing, I think, for many of us growing up, even in the Christian household, that we believed at the end of the day religion was about rules and regulations and the do's and the do nots and what we're, how we're supposed to behave and what we're supposed to believe. But Paul is inviting us to a deeper thing here. So as he continues on in Colossians 3, he's really challenging that. He's saying it's not about the do's and the do nots. It's about, not about behavior modification. But it's about practicing and living out who you are becoming because of Jesus. And so in Colossians 3, we find this beautiful little piece about virtue. And this is kind of setting us up for this whole series. Each week, we're going to be looking at one of the specific virtues that Paul highlights here in Colossians 3. So in verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And so what does Paul replace the do's and the do not's with? He replaces it with virtue. And what he's saying is, not only is Jesus the full revelation of what God is really like, and this is something that we've really been exploring the past several years in our church community, that Jesus is the full revelation. Scripture was the partial revelation of God. Our experience is a partial revelation of God. Nature is a partial revelation of God. But Jesus is the full revelation. If we cannot say it about Jesus, we cannot say it about God. But Jesus is also the truly human being. Jesus came to show us what it means to be a wholehearted and complete person. So in a way, Jesus is the fancy Greek word here that we find is telos. He is our goal. He is our destination. And so I often wonder when I bump up against these moral questions of the day, well, what's, what's the starting point? What's, what do we believe is the origin of the human story in these, in these moral uh, questions that we're being asked today. And what's the goal? Where are we headed? What does it mean to be a whole and complete human being? And the more that we sink ourselves into that, the better it helps us to make decisions. And part of that is that we begin to learn to listen carefully to the moral quandaries of the day, to ask those kinds of questions before we jump into formulating opinions so that we can belong to any particular party or tribe. But we also begin to listen to the deeper story that God is speaking to us at the deepest part of our hearts. And I think, sadly, both the church, so much of the church today and the world are not in the formation business, but are in the indoctrination business. And I think that that's one of the saddest shifts that's happened in the past 50 years in the church as we left behind what we would call discipleship, which is learning how to be formed by the Spirit of Jesus in us, to indoctrination which is I'm not teaching you how to live, how to think, how to feel, but I'm telling you what to believe. I'm telling you what to think. I'm telling you what to feel. And if you just agree with all of these things, then you get to belong. And we've sold short the place of spiritual formation. And if you and I are honest with ourselves, it's not about religion or the secular culture around us but it's really that all of these competing narratives are crushing us with all of the rules and the regulations and the behavior modification. And I think that there's a beautiful opportunity for us to listen carefully to what Paul is teaching us, to to pierce beneath all of that crushing weight of legalism that we find within our world today and to find something deeper. So where does virtue come from? How are we formed? to learn how to think, feel, and act a little bit more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. Well, I think we become virtuous when we partner with the Spirit of Jesus within us to develop that character that looks more like him. Because the Christian story tells us where we come from. We come from a God who is love. We come from a God who is other-centered, other-focused, who is generous and kind and abundant. And we know where we're headed. We're headed to look more like Jesus in union with God and in union with one another. And we recognize that at our baptism, we are gifted that spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit that is within us, that begins that process of forming us day by day as we continue to show up in our own stories. And the reality of virtue formation is that it doesn't come automatically It's not a one and done thing, like I was baptized, I have the Holy Spirit, now automatically I just start uh, being in the right with whatever I think and feel. And it also doesn't come spontaneously, that it's not just something that just happens to us that all of a sudden, you know, God is just working within us and he's just doing this thing and we're kind of innocent bystanders to our own story. It requires us to show up, it requires effort on our part and we have to believe that that effort is worth it. And I think this is challenging Um, to one degree to some of our our charismatic friends who believe that once I receive the Holy Spirit, then everything automatically just happens to me. Um, Or, you know, to some of perhaps our hyper-Calvinistic friends that say, well, there's there's no good in the effort of humanity. It all has to be on the part of God to do this work. But time and again, we realize in the scripture, through the teachings of Jesus, through his actions, through the the words of his disciples, like, no, there's part of our co-conspiring with his spirit to be open, to be exposed to him, to show up, to put forth the effort to allow him to do the work within us. And so I think God makes that first move is what we call grace, but we also respond to that. And so once we know who we really are, that begins to shape how we think and we act and we feel. And that's what Paul's trying to remind us in Colossians. He's saying, no, these things have already been happened to you. You have died. You've been raised to new life. You've been found in Jesus. And they that maybe that doesn't always show up in your behavior. It doesn't always show up in your patterns of thinking and feeling. But you're working that story out from the inside to the outside. And that when we begin to embrace a vision of virtue that becomes the doorway to us making ethical decisions, both in how we as individuals posture ourselves to treat the people with whom we're in relationship, but it also begins to shape how we see these larger conversations that are happening on the national and global scale. And we begin to see them differently um, because we're recognizing who we're being formed to be in Jesus. And that I I think speaks to the radical love of God And I've spoken about this many times before, but I think it bears repeating that the radical love of God is something that is so hard for us to contend with, because in one hand, the radical love of God is total acceptance of where we are and who we are today, that God's love is unconditional. He does not have us jump through hoops in order to find acceptance with him. Yet in the other hand, the radical love of God is also a transformation of who we are. And if you've ever been in love, you know that love necessarily changes you. It transforms you. And one of the, the narratives that we find in society today is, oh, you love me for who I am today and you don't expect me to change. And that sounds really nice until you really realize like, well, actually, no, I, I do want to change. I want to grow. I want to be set free from some of my coping mechanisms or some of my fears and anxieties. And if I am truly receiving love, If people are truly loving me, then I will grow out of that, not out of an attempt to modify my behavior, which is, you know, the transformation without acceptance. Once I behave appropriately, then I'm worthy of love. Um, But actually through a partnership with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, to receive the radical love of God in a way that it transforms us. And so here's what we hope to accomplish in this series as we're looking through each of these virtues that Paul highlights in Colossians chapter 3. Number one, we want to see Jesus as our template, the truly human virtuous one. So each of these different virtues, we demonstrate them in partiality, but when we look at Jesus, we see the full vision of what those virtues are fully formed. We want to really define, number two, we want to really define what these virtues are and what they are not, because there's a lot of counterfeits to some of these virtues when we've lowered our sights of what it's, what it's possible to become and we've settled for the lesser definitions. Um, but to also look at some of the accompanying vices. And I, I once heard it said, you know, anybody can learn a vice. That comes quite naturally to us. But it requires us to, to, to show up a little bit more and to be a little bit more careful when it comes to learning virtue. Number three, we want to be inspired um, by people that we find in scripture who are learning how to become virtuous people. We want to be inspired by people that we find throughout history, many of which are in the Christian household, who have laid claim to this place of spiritual formation and day by day become more and more like Jesus. And in our modern day too, like even within our community, who are the people among us who are practicing virtue in a way that it moves from being first nature, which is something that we we have to focus on intently, to second nature, which just naturally kind of radiates out from us because we've shown up and done the work. And fourthly, we want to develop some spiritual practices that will help us to cultivate virtue so that it becomes second nature. So that's, that's kind of the vision of where we're headed over the coming weeks. And I hope that even if you're not able to make it every Sunday in person, as we reflect, as we pray, as we practice um, some, you know, special disciplines that can help us to enter into these different virtues, um, that you'll be tuning in to the podcast so that you can just kind of keep track with us where we're going over time. Because if there's anything that I've learned about virtue formation, it's that God is not in a rush. Um, It doesn't happen on a single Sunday morning. It doesn't happen on a Wednesday afternoon or whatever you might be listening to this. Uh, sometimes it does, but most of the time it actually happens over time as we develop a relationship with God and trust him in where he's leading us. And I want to leave you with this quote um, that I just found so moving and inspiring over the past couple of weeks is, I have felt so disoriented and disconnected from the story of Jesus as I myself have been tempted by some of the competing narratives within our society and even within the Christian household, um, as I've had to do the work to kind of crawl back to the story of God to remind me of who I actually belong to, what it actually means for me to be my true self um, in light of who Jesus really is and to come back around to what the purpose of life itself is and what I'm really here to do. And this is a passage from a book called Christ of the Celts by John Philip Newell, and it reads like this. To be made in the image of God is to say that creativity is at the core of our being, deeper than any barrenness that has dominated our lives and relationships. And above all else, it is to say that love And the desire to give ourselves away to one another in love is at the heart of who we are, deeper than any fear or hatred that holds us hostage. I want to read that again because I think that is so powerful. Above all else, it is to say that love and the desire to give ourselves away to one another in love is at the heart of who we are, deeper than any fear or hatred that holds us hostage. Deep within us is a longing for union, For our genesis is in the one from whom all things have come. Our home is the garden, and deep within us is the yearning to hear its song again. And so, Father, I pray over the coming weeks, would you open us up to explore the possibility of what virtue means for us, not simply in how we make ethical and moral decisions, but to recognize that we have been caught up in a story, a beautiful story, your story, that speaks life into those three questions that are are deep in the heart of all humanity. And who do we truly belong to? Who are we really? And why are we here? And God, I pray that you would go ahead of us on this journey, make straight the paths, that we'd have such beautiful revelations of your radical love that is totally accepting and totally transforming. That we come to the end of this series just so glad that our allegiance to Jesus means that we leave behind the competing narratives that swirl around us and we sink deeper into the story of who you really are and who we are because of your love. So guide us and protect us. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.